Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he was going along and approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Now, does anybody have anything different in their reading? Does it add anything in your version? Carol? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now what verse is that? That is uh, part of verse 5. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's verse 6. And that's in the New King James? Yes. Who else has that? those particular words? The Old King James sounds a little more interesting. Read it. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecute. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Yeah. It's the, it's the famous prick remark. Okay. Well, that's in the New King James and the King James. Anybody else have translations that say that? Here in chapter 9? Because it's not found in most other translations. Paul mm. oh. From I am Jesus, and now get up and go. There's nothing from following in the NIV. <laughs> That's right. Right. Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And Paul doesn't give a response there. The textual exemplars, the manuscripts, the oldest and the majority readings do not contain that extra bit of phrasing. It actually comes from a later account in the Acts of the Apostles of the same event that has been uh, added in earlier on in some of the manuscripts that lie behind the King James. It's not found in the NAS, not found in the NIV, not found in the NRSV. It's not in your NASB, is it, Susan? Nope. Nope. And Young's, uh-huh. he says, I am Jesus who thou dost persecute. Hard for thee at the pricks to kick. <laughs> <laughs> that could be used in multiple ways. <laughs> so we're talking about cattle prods here. I uh, hope. <laughs> okay. This is the straightforward account told from the third person by the narrator telling it as it happens. All right? Now, 
you put a thumb there or a marker <clears throat> or something. And we're going to turn over to chapter 22. This is Paul's first recounting of the event. Chapter 22, verse 6. While I was on my way and approaching Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone upon me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? Then he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I asked, What am I to do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told everything that has been assigned to you to do. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, those who were with me took my hand and led me to Damascus. Now, first of all, are there any differences in, from my reading here of <coughs> 6 through 11 of chapter 22? in the King James or the Old King James? No, basically. Basically the same, just updating in language. Yeah, a little different language, but yeah. same thing. Any particularly different in the NIV? No? In ASB? No. The um, New Living, essentially the same? Yes. Okay. New Living? Believe it or not. It's essentially the same. It's essentially the same. You have missed me in Bible study. Yes, we have. We have, have, and we want to see you on Wednesday. I will be back. Yay! Okay. Now, let's take a look at some of the details between 9 and 22. Beginning in 9, verse 4, He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Over here in chapter 22, verse 7, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Back over in chapter 9, verse 5, He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In chapter 22, I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, essentially, it's the same. It's just adding in, in Paul's retelling of it, of Nazareth thus far. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Now, we're going to use the version that reflects the older manuscripts. Verse 6. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Now in mine it says those who were with me saw the light and were afraid. That's all it says? But they did not hear the voice of him who was speaking. And were afraid, but did not hear the voice right. of him who was speaking. Again, ver- in chapter 9, 
verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Chapter 22, verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. The Luke heard him, or said that uh, they heard him, and all the telling was they didn't hear him, but they showed him to the light. It's ex- almost exactly the opposite, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Matt says they did not understand the voice. Okay, that's interpretive in your remark, interpretation? Okay. That is usually how people try to keep this from being a direct contradiction between the two accounts. They said they heard a noise but did not comprehend what it was saying. But that's interpretive. That's interpretive of what this might mean. The language here, straightforward, is as simple as I read it. Again, from chapter 9, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. It doesn't say they didn't see the light. It says they saw no one. Nobody. But it's the hearing that's the problem. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. They heard the voice. Verse 7. In chapter 22, verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not hear the voice. It's the voice that's the issue. The light is the issue too. Because this would then, one way you can harmonize that is to say, well they saw the light but they didn't see anybody in the light talking to Paul. Okay. But if you read chapter 9 it looks like they didn't see anything at all but they heard the voice and that's why they were afraid. They didn't see what was going on but they heard it. Whereas in chapter 22, they didn't hear it, but they saw the light. You get it? Mm-hmm. You see the issue? And you see the, there, is, there is a functional discontinuity, to use big language, between 9 and 22. But where is it? Thank you very much. It's not quite off of hearsay. Luke's source is probably Paul himself for this. But how people hear these stories will vary. And he tells it here this way. He then, same author, is using Paul's own self-defense here. He wasn't sitting there taking notes. He's telling this story after the fact, even here in chapter 22. And he gives this other, slightly different account down to and including the adding of of Nazareth and the flip-flop on the hearing. Now, an historian takes a look at this and says, that's like two different people witnessing an automobile accident. The basics are the same. It's the details that will vary depending on perspective. We have that here, which speaks to the historical authentication of this passage, this event. Paul telling it himself in chapter 22, but being written down by Luke much after the fact, 
says it a little different than Luke's version of it, narrative version, which he also got from Paul. You see the interesting note there. The same author is writing the whole book and the same basic source for both of these. Paul varied in telling the story. Paul varied. Well, speaking directly to you, I think you'd be so in awe and worried, especially... A little less concerned about what everybody else is hearing. Well, that, you know, he's got scales on his eyes. What's he going to see that other people are seeing? Yes, he's blinded. Okay. Good point. If the others saw the light, why weren't they blinded? There you go. They didn't need to be. Well, and the thing is, is there were there was more than one person traveling with Paul. Mm-hmm. He may have asked them what they experienced, and one said one thing, and, and the another other said, said something, something different. different. It's also possible, possible, that Luke's has multiple sources for this. One is Paul, and a couple are those who were on the road with him. Paul, Luke was a good historian as well as being a doctor and he may have been drawing from multiple sources for that. Paul's version may well be one of these two whereas the chapter 9 version may be an account that he garnered from people who were with him. But did he not realize that when he wrote the one and he wrote the other one? There was a difference? Wait a minute, I, uh, not matching. Yeah. His honesty, his truthfulness to the stories that he has received tells him to put it all in. Even if there seems to be seems to be something of a discontinuity between them, disagreement, conflict. Historian sees this as proof of the event. From differences of perspective. Mm-hmm. And there's a possibility of how many years in between writing this and writing this? Well, between writing, none, because Acts was written pretty much all at once. The events of years separate the event, the narrative event as described in chapter 9, and then the narrative event in which Paul is speaking here in chapter 22. Years separate those events. All right. But you understand the difference between the text. This is in Paul's own words. It's dialogue from Paul. Quote, this is what Paul said. This is a narrative story of the event put together by someone who was not there as reported by, as reported by Paul and maybe those who were with him. This proves the event occurred. <coughs> Paul was encountered. Why else would there be two versions of the story that have some slight differences? Now, if you want to harmonize it, you can by saying they heard a sound but did not comprehend it. But that's not the straightforward reading. That's not the straightforward reading. Now let's make it even more fun. Take a look at the third version, found in chapter 26, beginning at verse 12. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. When at midday along the road, Your Excellency, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. 
I asked, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. <laughs> the Matthew Henry version. Yeah, that's pretty good. This is longer, a lot longer. Now, in addition, we this is where the goats come in. I mean, this is where Luke puts in the pricks <laughs> that you're kicking against, which get drafted over in the chapter nine. They were they in twenty two? No. So the pricks didn't make it in the twenty two. No. But they're here in 26 in all versions, okay? The goads, actually. And the, uh, also, in 22 and 26, uh, Paul says it was at noon or at midday. In chapter 9, it doesn't say what time of the it day. It doesn't give the time of the day. And we all fell to the ground. You noticed it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's take a look. In chapter 9... It just says that Paul falls to the ground. Mm -hmm. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. That's verse 7 of chapter 9. Mm -hmm. In chapter 22, verse 9, Now those who were with me saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. We don't know whether they were up or down. <laughs> It says in verse 7 of chapter 22, I fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to me. In chapter 26, it says, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around about me when we had all fallen to the ground. I heard a voice. It doesn't address what they heard or anything else, but it expands heavily on what Jesus says to him. Here, huh? It doesn't mention the previous line. No, it doesn't. Now, that wasn't his focus. The only real difference that I see here, if you want to call it one, other than the additional text, which is unimportant. I mean, the additional text is important, but it's not a conflict with the other passages. Just because more is added here in chapter 26, it wasn't important in telling chapter 9, and it wasn't important in his recounting in chapter 22. He adds it in here for the context to whom he's speaking in chapter 26. And who was he speaking to? This was a meeting before Herod Agrippa, and you see all the content that's here. And in 22, he was talking to the Sanhedrin, wasn't he? Who was it in 22? Look in your notes. In chapter 22, he's giving his speech to other Jews. Right, exactly. So what we have then in 26, its difference is more along the lines of additional material. Also, the light appears around everybody and they all fall when we had all fallen to the ground. Whereas otherwise it's 
Paul falling, those others stood speechless. So there's between 9 and 26, there's a possibility of a conflict in that they stood speechless in 9, mm -hmm. they've fallen in 26. And the light appearing all around them seems to imply that they all saw it, <coughs> although it's not necessarily so. There's a reason for them falling. Right. So there is a conflict between 9 and 26, not necessarily between 22 and 26, and the additional material is not a conflict. It's simply additional material. It could very well be that this account, this dialogue between Paul and Jesus, where Jesus is essentially talking to Paul, didn't all happen at that exact moment, but, it, but occurred over a period of time while he was blind. And he sort of telescoped it, in, yes, telescoped it into right here. And not necessarily while he's laying there. Could be. We don't know. Nine is straightforward. Simple. Bang, bang, bang. Here are the facts. Could have been written by Mark. Yeah, could have been written by Mark. Has that feel to it. It's very short, very to the point. 22 is a little more expanded. Has slight difference in perspective and point of view as to what happened to Paul's companions, but essentially it's the same thing. 26 is quite expanded because the focus is different. Audience is different. Purpose for Paul saying it is different in part. Paul was very good at speaking to the crowd that he had. He did it very well at Athens. He did it very well at Corinth. All of the audiences that he spoke to, he was able to communicate with to them on their ground, in their language, in the way that they thought. So he was a master at that. And he knew how to use stories to his advantage to get his points across, which is what he's doing in all three of these cases. Well, in two of these cases. The first version of the story, the narrative telling of the story, serves its own purpose. It tells the story. Well, and in the third recounting, retelling, mm -hmm. the emphasis is on is not on what happened to Paul, hmm. but Jesus's method and Jesus's plan. The purpose that Jesus has for Paul is what's front and center here. Paul himself. His companions, both are mentioned, but they are tertiary in the story. So here he's, it's almost like he's evangelizing hmm. to Agrippa, where in 22 he was defending himself amongst his peers. Right. And in 9 it's the story being told. Then then... The fact that they stood speechless. Think that be the act of getting up off the ground. That's how it is sometimes harmonized. They have at that point gotten up after having fallen. And again, if he's blinded, how does he know? Well, he's telling the story. Maybe someone dead. told him, but he's more focused in on Jesus, I would imagine. But I'm sure that they've told him. They told him what happened after the fact. Or it also, since it may have come, nine may have come from the companions, mm -hmm. they didn't want to appear weak. <laughs> there you go. That's All another fell down, but we, we did, did 
We just stood there. <sighs> Let's go back and look at 9 again, now that we've gone through the 3. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Wow. I like that. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So they gave him essentially warrants for the arrest of any Christians. The way was a term used for Christians, those who followed the way of Jesus. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The word here, voice, is the Greek word phonain, phonos, sound, phonics, but it's articulated sound, speech, all right? which is different than a bang or something. He said, Who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice, but saw no one. They heard the voice, phonase, taste, phonase, same thing. There was a phonase, and they heard the phonase. They heard the phone. <laughs> the phone rang, and they heard it. Yeah. Jesus phoned, and they heard the phone. All right. Well, eventually, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, is that Paul did. Yeah. Um, but the phone, phonase, is used in both places. Okay. Now, going to, let's look at it 9, because that's where the most immediate problem is. Now, verse 9 of 22. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And the root... Is, the word is phonane. Did not hear the phonane. Uk ekuasan. Yeah. Did not hear, did not listen to the, the phonane. So in, in chapter 9, they hear the phonane. In chapter 22, they do not hear the phonane. The word is the same. I was thinking, well, maybe the word is different in Greek, and we could save it that way. That's the direct kind of word, but the verb. Mm. To hear? Is it to hear, listen, or hear, comprehend? In verse 7 of 9, akuantes, from akuo to hear. And in verse 9, it is akuasan, 
which is also to hear, did not hear, did not, did not hear, did not receive, did not, but it's oral hearing. It's a different case, but it's the same meaning. Uh, the difference as is, assuming it is a difference, as I'm willing to assume it is not, the difference as we have read it thus far is almost certainly the result of multiple sources, multiple versions of the account, and Luke's honesty as a historian not being present, giving them all. Probably he had been either told by Paul or by someone else who was there, Paul's defense in chapter 22, and Paul's defense in chapter 26. If he wasn't there, he heard it from someone who was, and talked to somebody who was present at the conversion experience itself on the road to Damascus, if not Paul, then a companion. I tend to think that it was probably a companion for chapter 9, the straightforward account, and that it may have been Paul himself for the third one and the second one. That Paul told him what his defense had been. If he was appearing before Agrippa, would there have been a scribe recording what he said? Yes, but we don't know if Luke would have been able to have access to that information given the adversarial relationship between the vassal government there in in Judea and early Christians like Luke. So if there was a scribe, I by the by the 80s AD when when Acts is being written, I, I don't. I couldn't assume that they came from that. Account. I'd have a problem assuming that they came from that account. That would be really stretching it. Could be, but that would be stretching it. More likely, these come from Luke conversations with Paul. There's a guy that persecuted anybody that followed Christ. First thing, he didn't fall down and go, are you an angel? Are you God? He, asked, he said, Lord. That, no, he knew it was a sir, uh, someone very important. This is uh, either an angel or God himself. See, Ron actually says that. On your all three translations, who are you, sir? Who are you, sir? Now, you see, the word here in Greek, let me look at chapter 9 version. In verse 5, the word is kurie, kurios, Lord. It has the meaning of sir, but I think you're, you've got your finger on a real truth here in that he doesn't assume it's Satan. He addresses him with the honorific Lord. Not, not possibly knowing exactly who this is. In fact, I would say probably knowing exactly who this is. Were the Jews into Satan at that point in time? Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, they knew who Satan was. Jesus did. He talked about it. Yeah, that, that, that wouldn't have been impossible. But considering what he's going to do, and then he's intercepted in this way. By this light that comes from heaven. From heaven. That immediately means it's from God. So his response is going to be, you know, the first thing out of his mouth is, you know, courier. 
Lord. And the Old Testament teaches that you should have looked directly on the presence of, on the face of nope. God that you see this light or burning mm-hmm. bush. Or and Paul, Saul, is a very good student of the faith, having been taught at the feet of Gamaliel. So he knows what you're supposed to do and not do. But of course, he didn't have to worry about that. God knocked him off his horse. So that's, you're, you touched it really interesting. Here he is going to persecute, still breathing death and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And the first thing he does when he's encountered is, Lord, who are you? Not quite a rhetorical question, but it he I kind he, of... I think he knew that he just wanted to make sure... Yes, exactly. He had very strong suspicions. It's God or God's immediate agent. But, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Uncle, uncle, uncle. <laughs> Lord, Lord, Lord. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's no wonder it, stu- it changed him. It stopped him. I don't want us to lose the importance of the story as a whole. This man had held the coats for those who stoned Stephen, had been out to arrest and persecute, bind and throw into prison and drag back to Jerusalem Christians. Men and women. Men and women. He was out to stop this movement. And on his way to do the dirty deed, Jesus appears to him. He said, I have had enough. Mm-hmm. You are going to stop this. And not only that, but I'm making you mine. I'm flipping you. Paul had spiritual intellectual honesty. He believed he was doing the exact right thing. He watched on as they stoned Stephen and approved of it. He thought this was right. There was no question in his heart. He went to get authorization to go and do this. It was what he wanted to do. He believed he was in the right. Jesus intercepts him and flips him. And he goes from being the greatest oppressor of the church out to destroy the way, the Christian movement, and converts him into the greatest apostle of the church. So what his companions heard or didn't hear are beside the point. What they saw or didn't see is beside the point. It's what Paul saw, what Paul heard, and what Paul did that is the point. And what he did is what is proclaimed here in chapter 26 version relative to what Jesus said he was going to do with him. And let's take a look at that, because that's the part that usually when you get into these things gets just sort of missed. You realize, wow, there's a whole lot of extra stuff here, but what in the heck did he say? But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I'm appointing you to work for me and to report about what you've seen and what you're going to see. I'm drafting you. No 4F here. Verse 17. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. 
to whom I am sending you. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, and I'm going to have to rescue you from them, and your people are going to attack you, and I'm going to rescue you from them too. Verse 18. To open their eyes, uh, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, that's just, just identifying precisely what his calling as an apostle is. Right there. It's this man who had been an opponent. He's now going to proclaim and expand the church from being a sect of Judaism out into the Gentile world with this purpose, with this objective. And it, it, it's amazing. I mean, we talked about it in our study in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It will be a subject in Galatians. It was the fact that he was a persecutor that was used against him so heavily by his opponents, Christian opponents. He once persecuted us. He was the greatest persecutor against us. He was going to Damascus to arrest us. You really can't trust what he has to say. You know, he's proclaiming the gospel to you Gentiles, and that's really good. We're pleased about that. But he didn't tell you the whole story because he's trying to get your approval. You really can't trust him after all. Remember who he is. Remember what he did originally. And here's what he did. And then that little thorn in the flesh, that little messenger of Satan says, because you did this, because you approved of the stoning of Stephen, because you were on your way to Damascus to arrest all these Christians and you were breathing threats and murder against the disciples. I mean, you breed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You think Jesus is going to forgive you? It doesn't matter how many Gentiles you convert. Jesus will never really forgive you. You're going to hell, Paul. You might as well stop it. That's what the little messenger of Satan was saying to him. A little thorn in the flesh. So, this kind of puts it in perspective. Here is both a fantastic illustration in this man's life of what God can do to change people. Flipped him completely. Was an agent for one side, became the agent, the principal agent for the other. Flips him completely. And this then gets used against him by those fellow Christians who are opposed to an aspect of his message or wanting to gain ascendancy over him in leadership of his churches. It's a very um, amazing example of how God can transform a life and use a life. And the lengths to which some people will go to try to oppose that action God's action. Or the length that some people will go to follow what he's... I mean, Saul was set. Oh, wow. And, and, and as Paul, he was... Saul had a position. He would have probably risen to really great heights 
before he died, possibly would have ended up dying in 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem as a leader of the Jewish people. He would have been a, a really, he was a Benjaminite, so he couldn't have been a high priest, but he would have been a very important leader in the Sanhedrin. Probably would have died in the insurrection had he lived that long, and probably would have, because he wouldn't have died in the, in, you know, before 70 AD. He was alive in the 60s when he, he was executed. Jail, he no. Probably would, until the very end, he would have survived and then died in Jerusalem, be my guess. But, but God took him, and because God took him and converted him into the apostle and made him the greatest communicator for the gospel, Paul ended up giving up all of that. But because he gave up all of that, he ended up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. Well, the epistle literature. Half of the New Testament. And thanks to him, we know about the dirty rats in Corinth and uh, <laughs> and what it is that that when things go wrong in church, you know, they don't we don't have anything on them. <laughs> the on the churches back then did Not too. We no, and we got the letter to the Romans, which reflects the powerful core of the Christian faith, and the letter to the Galatians, which reflects the powerful core of freedom in Christ Jesus and the power of grace. And we see it here in the Acts of the Apostles in the three versions of his conversion. Some people want to make great hay out of the differences. I don't believe in trying to minimize the differences. I think they're there. They are written. They are clear. They are straightforward. They reflect differences in sources and thereby lend great historical weight to the authenticity of the account which, in my opinion, would be the reason why the Holy Spirit let it stay. Because God knows that humans need this kind of internal evidence. So it ends up becoming a testimony to the infallibility of Scripture, mm -hmm. even if it is on its surface a, a challenge to its quote-unquote inerrancy. Well, any time you explain something or tell somebody something and then you tell it again mm -hmm. there's going to be a difference in the way you tell it and the words that you use right because the only way it's going to be exactly the same is if you've memorized it from a script and then it sounds fake well the first time you say it yeah, it just happened you say it mm -hmm. next time it's been a while and you've actually thought about it now you lavish it a little bit well, he's telling it for the purpose, for a specific purpose in the second and third events. The first event, it's simply telling it to tell it. And that removes it from a context other than its original one. And I think that is important to remember. Do you remember what the difference that I propose is between inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture? I subscribe to the inerrancy of the Word of God, Jesus himself. He is himself perfect. Inerrant means that which is without error, error in and of itself. And it, that means it's perfect. And I only believe that Jesus is perfect. The Word, the Holy Scriptures, are infallible, meaning they do not teach error. They don't teach us anything wrong. You can teach error with the Bible. 
but the Bible itself does not teach error. Now, some people say, well, that's not much of a distinction. Well, there is a distinction there in that what the Bible speaks to, what the Bible teaches, when it teaches itself, it teaches, does not teach error, it teaches truth. And it's based and rooted on the authority of Christ Jesus, the eternal word, who is inerrant himself. So, you know, you can't, you can't take Jesus, Jesus, really Jesus, and teach falsehood with him. He's always true. But you can take the Bible and pervert it and twist it and teach falsehood with it. So it can be perverted, but when it speaks for itself, it teaches truth. Jesus is that truth and is the foundation upon which this rests. So I see a difference between inerrancy and infallibility, but it's Inerrancy is perfect in and of itself. Infallibility means it is derived from that inerrant one who undergirds it. So it can be perverted by readers and teachers and preachers, and often is. It can be misunderstood, but in and of itself, it doesn't teach error. And this speaks to it. You can have three versions of the story that have apparent contradictions between them, but taken as a whole... They teach a powerful truth. They do not contain, communicate an erroneous message. All right. They teach us a truth about Jesus, about God, about Paul, about his companions, about the beginning of his ministry as a Christian, and about us. Because if it weren't, huh? And like you said, the power of God to change people and to use people. And to use people. And... All of that is critically important. And you have the three versions, slightly different perspectives, which give those doubting Thomases out there the historical multiple attestations, which then say, well, with the three different perspectives, we still have the same story. That's a sign of historical truth. Therefore, you can accept it. So, and God knew that was necessary for some. So I don't see it as a conflict with the whole idea of of the infallibility of Scripture. It still st teaches the truth. The outcome is the same. The outcome is the same. Now, is what happened to those companions? Did they, did they hear or not hear the phonase? I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'll ask them. But until then, it's unimportant. They eventually heard the phonase through Paul, if nothing else, because they eventually told the story that got into chapter 9, probably. So, eventually they did hear the phonase. I don't think it matters whether they heard the phonase then or later. Later. That's my opinion. Some people, though, will take that, especially the skeptics and atheists, will take that and say, Aha! The Bible contains error, therefore you can't trust it. You might as well burn the whole thing. I think that's a bunch of nonsense. Questions? Huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Don't kick it get the pricks. Be they goads or people who bother you. <laughs> All right.
Gracious Father, we thank you for the blessings you give us each and every day, for every opportunity to pray, for every opportunity to read your word, for the reminder you give us that you call us, like Paul, to turn from our evil ways and to follow you. So often we kick against the goads. We don't want to do things your way, but ours. Bless us and empower us. Enable us to turn away and to follow your will for us. For on the night in which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself up for us, he took bread and gave thanks to you and broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave the cup to his disciples and said, and drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit make us one with Christ one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit and your Holy Church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your presence in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you that you sent your Son to encounter Paul on the road to Damascus, to call him, to transform him, and to send him out as your apostle. We all go on our roads to Damascus, and you have come and you have encountered us, and you have called us to serve you as your apostle in a broken and hurting world. Send us forth now in peace and grant us strength and courage to love and serve others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forever. Amen. Copyright by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. Visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.